0: Good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles up to Habakkuk chapter 1, please. Habakkuk chapter 1. In case you don't know, that's how um, Americans and the Hebrews, I believe, say Habakkuk. So... Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. All right. The oracle that Habakkuk the Prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and will you not hear? And you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we ask that as we listen now and I try to explain uh, what you've kept for us, that you would work this word into our hearts, transforming us and making us into the image of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's very easy, I think, for us to give uh, theological answers much too quickly to the situations that we face in life. What I mean is that in ministry, we sometimes dismiss real tensions that people feel, and we quickly try to get past their real problems that they're struggling with and smooth them over with orthodox answers. Now, please don't get me wrong. We do want to know the truth, and I, as much as anyone, want to contend for orthodoxy. Please hear that. But I am concerned that we don't feel the struggle of life always as much as we need to or should. And I think this is one of the reasons why Habakkuk is such a helpful book for us to have kept in Scripture, because he opens up his prophecy with two very important and entangled questions. How long, O Lord? And why? How long, O Lord? And why? Have you ever asked these questions? Have you ever felt such a deep tension that you had to cry out to God, I, I don't know how long this can go on, Lord, please deliver me. Why is this happening to me, Lord? If not, you may not have suffered a whole lot in life yet, and perhaps this will be a preparation for a time in the future for you. But for some here, I am sure that you have struggled, or maybe you're even struggling right this moment. You're asking God these two questions. How long? Why? Today, as we look at this passage, I hope that you'll see one thing in particular. The Lord is at work. He's at work to bring justice, even in His own ways and His own timing. And I think the challenge that's going to come to you, I hope, just as it's come to me, is that you'll have to recognize this fact. You feel an experience, but you don't see the whole. You feel and experience something, but you don't actually know and see and understand the whole. Whereas the Lord knows all, and He cares for the whole in ways that you cannot understand or comprehend. So let's look more closely at this text, beginning with Habakkuk's initial questioning to God in verse 2. And then we'll look and see the Lord's response in just a moment in verse 5. First of all, verse 2, Habakkuk begins by asking how long he must cry to God without an appropriate response. He accuses God of not hearing him, or if he hears, simply not bringing salvation when he feels it's owed Violence is the cry of Habakkuk. He elaborates on this problem in verse 3, asking his second question, why? And instead of focusing on hearing like he did in verse 2, notice here he asks about seeing. Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong?" He explains, destruction, violence, they are all around me and they're ever before me. Strife and contention arise. The wicked are surrounding the righteous so that justice is never carried out properly. In fact, in the beginning of verse 4, Habakkuk takes us to the heart of the problem. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth, he says. You can imagine how infuriating this would be, can't you? Even how frightening maybe it would be if you lived under such corrupt authorities. We're very privileged where we live. I understand that um, there wasn't always the right anti-corruption policies in place, even in Sydney, a place like this where even the police might have been corrupt at one time. But imagine living under a corrupt regime. What if you depended upon police to enforce the law, all the while the police were being paid by the criminals who were offending you. So if someone breaks into your home and they steal all the savings that you, you know, hide in that most secret place under your mattress, then you go to the police, but they've already been paid off by the crooks. Where would you turn for help? You'd have no hope for justice. Well, sadly for Habakkuk, it wasn't the threat of the bad guys out there, some criminals out there, Rather, it was his fellow countrymen, the people of God. And so rather than burglary, imagine your minister began preaching that Jesus never rose from the dead and that homosexual marriage should be blessed by clergy. Feeling deep in your guts, this is wrong. You go to your denominational leaders. But instead of condemning the heresy and standing down the immorality, They're in full agreement with these progressive beliefs. Where would you turn for justice? Where could you go to uphold theological and moral truth? You can imagine how alone you would feel. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a situation where this sort of injustice has been real for you. I'll give you a very, very minor example in my life. I was serving as a minister in a church many, many, many years ago let's say, on another continent, so you don't have to worry about who it was anywhere nearby, okay? It was definitely on another continent. And um, I was asked to cover music for a minister while he was going away on leave. And so I did. And I thought it went pretty well. It was fine. I did what I was asked to do. thought it went well. Uh, the next meeting with the clergy, uh, when upon his return, I was berated by him. I was berated... I suspect because of deep insecurity and jealousy, but the offense was that I chose a different song than what he had said I should do. And I was shouted down in this meeting with all the clergy sitting around and taking his side and supporting him. And I explained to him, sir, it was the same song, the sheet music just has a different title for the same song. No release. I felt so alone. How could they together stand and let that happen? Injustice. They lived in their own story together, and the law was paralyzed. Well, of course, there have been many and far worse tragedies at the hand of God's leaders. Even in recent days, the things that have been unveiled globally have been horrific, and you yourself may have endured much greater than what I've just recognized as a very minor offense, and known how painful and how lonely it can feel when there seems, to be no, there seems to be no justice. How long must these things happen? Why, Lord, would you let your servants see iniquity? These are the questions that Habakkuk asks the Lord, and I suspect these are the questions we've raised with God but I'm cautious to encourage us to interrogate God the same way that Habakkuk has. I'm cautious. Notice, though, that Habakkuk is never rebuked for these things. In fact, the Lord only affirms what Habakkuk says as the passage goes on. Yep, these are real problems. But I can't help but wonder if this passage is actually helping us, even through Habakkuk, to communicate a much bigger truth. And perhaps one filter we might use before we go shaking a fist at God and and concerning our problems with Him, although I think we should talk to Him about our problems, is this. Does our cry against injustice accord with the expectations set out for us in Scripture? Does our cries against injustice accord with the expectations set out for us in Scripture? For Habakkuk living as a Hebrew... In the promised land, he knew what conduct was appropriate for God's covenantal people. In fact, he knew the curses that were promised to come upon this people if they disobeyed the Lord. So why was their conduct so blatantly against the Lord being ignored? Where was the punishment that God had promised would come? And before we move on to the Lord's answer, to Habakkuk's questions, I do think it's worth reflecting on the experience of Jesus for a moment. You can imagine how horrible the injustice was that he endured, even at the hands of God's people, even at the hands of God's leaders. You can imagine the kind of trial that he had as the wicked surrounded him, and indeed the justice that went forward at his trial it was nothing short of perverse. But like we are about to see in the Lord's response to Habakkuk, sometimes there's more going on than meets the eye or can be imagined. And so in verse 5, the Lord answers. Whereas Habakkuk asked the Lord in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? The Lord responds I want you to see. You've asked me, do I see? Oh, I want you to see something here. Notice in verse 5, look among the nations and see. Then again in verse 6, behold. In other words, I do see. In fact, let me give you a bigger picture of what's happening. But this isn't just a word for Habakkuk. In fact, God expands the view to the plural. And he's now addressing the whole people. And the Lord extends his response to the whole people. It was as if Habakkuk had raised his questions on behalf of the remnant, and now God addresses the whole nation. And as the Lord delivers this bigger picture, the command comes not just to see, but to wonder and to be astounded. Habakkuk had questioned why injustice had abounded, and the Lord was about to tell him where justice would come from a place nothing less than astounding. Nothing short of the work of the sovereign Lord Himself. In fact, the work the Lord was going to be doing was unbelievable, God says. Look at verse 5. I'm doing work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. You couldn't believe it if I told you these things. I think the unbelievability is something to ponder for a second. Why would it be unbelievable? It's because... The Lord was not thought to be able? Well, surely not. God was able to call foreigners in the past. I mean, look at Father Abraham. Is it not possible for the Lord to conquer? Well, of course it is. The Lord delivered the Hebrews from the Egyptians, and he took them into a nation where they had to conquer in his power. So what was so unbelievable? I suspect they never thought it would happen to them surely not this people over us we're your people well actually they hadn't been living as god's people for quite some time and i think unfortunately the old saying is true familiarity breeds contempt the lord's people had grown too familiar with god's being god's people they took it for granted And this familiarity led to deep disobedience of the most offensive kind. They attributed power and worth to the worldliest of things. They worshipped idols. And so the Lord in his sovereignty determined to raise up the Chaldeans, that wicked nation, against his people. And he offers a terrifying picture of what's about to come. Look at verse 6 down to verse 11. Especially in verse 6, though, it's fascinating the language that was once used for the Israelites entering the promised land is now used of them. Look at verse 6. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Do you remember Deuteronomy 6? And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build houses full of all the good things you did not fill, cisterns you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. When you eat and drink and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord. passage goes on in Deuteronomy 6 to warn very severely what will happen if they go after other gods. But here, centuries later, the people have forgotten And those severest of warnings are coming to pass. The people whom the Lord had covenanted with are being uprooted by a non-covenantal people. And these people are fierce. They are a law unto themselves. They have no accountability to anything but their appetite for power. But what's more, they bring justice of their own kind. Where's justice, cried Habakkuk? here comes justice. It's going to be brought by the Chaldeans. A law unto themselves, declares the Lord. As for the speed at which the army moves in verse 8, I think we're meant to notice that even though they are far away people, distance is nothing to them. You can imagine that nation, like, way over there. They're coming. Nah, we'll be all right. You think that until you realize just how quickly they can cover ground, just how swiftly that judgment can come, almost in an instant. It's nothing to them. There's no escaping it. And as for what they will bring, they will bring justice in the form of violence. In verse 2, Habakkuk cried out to God because of the violence that he'd known, In verse 3, he asked why violence was always before him. And now verse 9 tells us this people are going to bring violence upon those who've been offenders. And again, we see a reversal of sorts for this covenant people. They were promised to be as numerous as the sands of the seashore. And the Chaldeans capture captives like sand. They move on every power, every stronghold laughing. There's no contest for them. And in verse 11, we see the Chaldeans are so convinced of their power, it's become their God. It's the very thing that they depend upon. It's the thing they worship. We are almighty, they think. What are we we supposed to make of this section? The Lord is showing us a few things, I believe, about the reality of how things are actually working. First of all, He controls all time and space. All of it is His. In fact, He can overturn His own people and uproot them by a nation that's not His people. All the nations are at His command. And second, God can and does use whomever He wishes for His purposes. In fact, the Apostle Paul made reference to these verses. I'm doing a work amongst you that you would not even believe if told. In Acts 13, as he begins to transition his ministry away from the Jews... the Gentiles. In view of the obstinance of their hearts, in view of the rejection of the gospel, I'll bring a new people. And finally, we're meant to see that being one of God's people is not meant to be taken for granted. When God called the Israelites to be His people and commanded them to live as such, He wasn't messing around I do fear that Christians, and I use that term very broadly, by the way, I'm not meaning this as a blanket indictment of everybody, but Christians generally are very much in peril at this point. Often in the name of the gospel, we have shunned morality. We've taken for granted what it means to belong to the Lord, being His children, and living with Christ as our Lord. And there are severe warnings that are sounded in the New Testament to us about this. In particular, these warnings are sounded in view of Christ's second coming. Don't fall asleep. Be alert. Be watchful. And perhaps most memorable for me are the warnings that come to us in 2 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3. In 2 Peter 2, 1-2, we read this. There will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. The worst that I've seen in recent years has been preachers, notable preachers, boldly proclaiming the gospel means death to moralism. In fact, what that translated to for them was death to morality. But the fine distinction that was neglected was the difference between moralism and morality. You cannot preach we are saved by grace, not by works, but then use grace as the most deadly excuse for sin. Paul's quite clear about that. Several leading Christians, even those who would be called world-renowned heralds of the gospel, have been deposed because of the discord between their life and their doctrine. The gospel is not counter to morality. In fact, the gospel demands morality. We live under the lordship of Christ. You are not saved by your morals, but when you are saved, you are called to a moral existence. But I realize that most most of us here may not be liable to this kind of licentious living. And maybe the word we need to hear a bit more is with Habakkuk crying out for justice. And the word we need to be reminded of today is the word I told you at the beginning. The Lord is at work bringing justice even in his own ways and in his own timing. And 2 Peter 3, verse 10 to 12, reminds us this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people... Ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The Lord tells us today, I'm doing a work in your days you would not believe if I told you.